0: Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to TheRestispolitics.com. That's TheRestispolitics.com.
1: This episode
0: is brought to you by Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alastair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. Now, Rory. Yes. As you know, when we get things wrong, unlike our national newspapers, we correct ourselves. Oh, yes. So last week, I said that Nigel Farage had appeared on BBC Question Time more than any other human being. And didn't that just show how populists have got a grip of the BBC, etc, etc, etc? And I got a very nice email from mm-hmm. none other than Fiona Bruce, presenter yes. of Question Time, who said this is a this is a well-worn but inaccurate, untrue statement. And she sent me the list. So would you like to have a guess who, which politician has appeared on Question Time more than any other in its entire history? Oh, what a good question. What a very, very good question. Michael Heseltine? No, he's not in the top 10. Okay. He is a Tory and he's from that era. That
1: era. So, so earlier than William Hague? Uh yes, but been around a long time. Still Ken t- Clark, Ken Clark. It's got to be Ken Clark.
0: Correct, correct. Ken Clark fifty-nine. Shirley Williams fifty-eight. Ming Campbell forty-seven. Harriet Harmon forty-five. Charles Kennedy, God bless him, forty-four. Claire Short thirty-eight. Paddy Ashdown and Roy Hattersley tied on thirty-six and then on thirty-five. Nigel Farage. I still think 35 appearances for Nigel Farage is somewhat high. No, no, but, but
1: wait wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. In defence of you, mm-hmm. those other names are real old veteran politicians. And I bet he's been on much more intensity because he only came to public prominence much later than people like Ken Clark or Shirley Williams. I mean, they managed to do that because they were coming on regularly over many, many years. I think if you looked at frequency in a year, I bet he beats them all. Yeah.
0: I also think that I was probably quoting something that I'd read that he'd made more appearances than anybody else in the last X years. And I yeah. think that, I think you're I'm absolutely right. I'm sure you're right, right on that. Yeah. yeah. So let's,
1: should we withdraw the rebuttal? Should we say that we're not, we don't, we're not, sorry at all. I'm very pleased <laughs> that you were responsible about that. Um, Here's a question for you. Elnaz Kashef, what did you both do for your work experience when you were in school? Did it have anything to do with politics? What have you learned from it that was useful for your career? Over to you, Alistair. Well, I spent every summer
0: um, doing, working on my uncle's farm. Uh, I did work in a light bulb factory. I don't think that helped my political career like, That's like, like a light bulb joke. You were like screwing in no, light I bulbs. No, I literally,
1: I was screwing in light bulbs all day long. Next to a guy <laughs> who'd done nothing else. With tr- Honestly. Wait, wait a Is that not what Charlie Chaplin does in the film, that his hands just going back and forth like that?
0: It's that what he does. Well, I, I was testing the light bulb strength and you, you, according to the, the color of the light that came on, you put them into different boxes um i did loads of sort of part but i don't recall i don't recall ever doing work experience i did paid work uh, that's that's good serious stuff you also worked on a farm i worked on the farms lots and you but you also worked on um a trade union didn't you
1: i, I that's right I've, <laughs> i work experience was with the transport and general workers union brilliant absolutely brilliant
0: now listen rory the, as you know in 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 my new book which is called but what can i do Fantastic. Well said again. Yep. I have invented this word called perseverance. And there's a guy called Fraser Webster who is perservilient because his question reads as follows. I'm just going to keep asking this until you get to it. So well done, <laughs> Fraser. We've done it. The defeat to Johnson, this is definitely for you, Rory, and it's very personal. The defeat to Johnson obviously still runs deep for Rory. Did he really think he'd get near him? I seem to remember Johnson being the clear front runner from the start and Rory being the outsider candidate from a Rory fan.
1: Well, um, I just felt, I guess, that he couldn't win. I felt that in the end, he was not suitable to be prime minister and that the British public might think he was, you know, could be amusing, that he might even be a someone they could see as mayor of London, but that they couldn't possibly see him as being serious enough to be prime minister. So I had completely convinced myself that however it looked in the end, when they had to face the fact, that he had no clear answers. And this is honestly what the debate was about, that catastrophic debate that I lost to him in 2019 TV debate, was literally on what are you going to do about the Northern Ireland border? Mm -hmm. How are you going to sort out your tariffs? Why do you think that you're going to be able to get a better deal out of Brussels and get uh, get Britain out of the European Union by the 31st of October? You can't, can you, Boris? You can't do that. I thought these points were so obvious. I mean, it, it... That the, particularly the points about Northern Ireland border that in the end he would have to lose, that he, he wouldn't be able to make it through a campaign without people just seeing that he was grotesque, that he was Mm. so obviously either lying or incompetent, or as I began to realize, sort of both at the same time in an intricate way. And of course I was completely wrong. Um, so in, in historical hindsight, could I have beaten him? Well, if I'm allowed to just indulge myself for another 45 seconds, um, If Sajid Javid had got one less vote. Fewer. Sorry. If Sajid Javid had got one (laughs) fewer votes, uh, in the round, I think it was on the Tuesday, he would have been eliminated. I think his votes, the majority of them, at least on our spreadsheets, uh, look like they could have come to me. I would have moved ahead of Michael Gove. He then would have been eliminated. I think his votes, again, would mostly come to me and I might have gone ahead of Jeremy Hunt. And that would have put me in the last two against Boris Johnson. And again, the question is, was there any chance if it had been me instead of Jeremy Hunt of convincing the Conservative Party in the country that Boris Johnson was taking them on a hiding to nothing? And I guess the answer probably is I would have lost there too, because the Conservative Party in the country was very, very pro-Brexit. Very suspicious of somebody like me who was seen as a Remainer who was too soft on Brexit. So, probably structurally, I was doomed. And I guess you'd agree.
0: Yeah, but also, you have to, if you're involved in a campaign like that, so like the Lib Dems going to the next general election campaign, they don't think that Ed Davey is going to become prime minister, but they have to set big objectives and go for them. So, you had to tell yourself that you could win. Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed and do the things you needed to do. So, I still think that was the right thing to think. And sometimes in elections, the impossible does come off. So, I think you had the right mindset.
1: And, and Macron did it. Macron did it. I mean, it was exactly. a different electoral system, but he exactly. he did do it. Yeah. So maybe I just wasn't good enough. Or or, or Macron's just much better. <laughs> Hannah Hannah Hyde-Platz. <laughs> Hannah <laughs> I'm writing my dissertation on the influence of think tanks in British politics, mainly focused on the mini budget. In your experience, how valuable, if at all, did you find think tanks when developing policies? Alistair, did you find think tanks valuable?
0: I think they can be. Um, I think that there's a real problem in in recent years that the because particularly during the Corbyn period the sort of the, the left think tank field got pretty much hollowed out people sort of felt they were whistling in the wind and the right has become very co-opted by this 55 Tufton Street ideological they're not really think tanks at all they're just another arm of a political machine but I can remember way back, the influence, for example, of the Social Justice Commission. I don't know whether you'd call that a think tank, but it was it was a policy development specifically set up to try to create ideas that the politicians would be interested in. I actually think a lot of the work that Tony Blair's Institute is doing at the moment, if I were a political party or a government in any different parts of the world, I'd be looking at some of the papers they produce. So yeah, I think think tanks can, I think the Resolution Foundation is very good. I think some of the I think that onward group that actually, they do some interesting work, more, more maybe more analytical of public opinion. But I think that, yeah, think tanks, I think can be can be very, very useful. And also don't underestimate the the importance of trying to find think tanks in other parts of the world that come up with ideas. Because I do think one of the problems with our, our politics at the
1: moment is that, you know, the ideas industry feels very, very tired. It, it does, doesn't it? And there's desperate, desperate push for new ideas. I mean, I think it's it's the thing that, You know, we keep coming back to this, but makes me worried about Labour. I don't feel that Keir Starmer is coming in with the same confidence and ideas that New Labour was coming in with in 96, 97. Now, is that just that there are fewer ideas out there? Is it that Britain is just in a very difficult situation? Is it that the whole world's just feeling more tired? Mm. I'd also say, though, that think tanks, yes, they can change things, but it can also be a pretty depressing business. To be honest, as a minister, I'm struggling to think of many examples where think tanks really made a difference. I I think, actually, sorry, there's one example. Think tanks who made the case, and I think influenced the Ministry of Justice to look at it more carefully, for abolishing short sentences in prisons, which would have massively reduced the prison population and and reduced reoffending by getting rid of sentences, uh, magistrates' ability to give sentences for under six months. That I think probably originated in think tanks.
0: Well, rather than the penal reform campaign organizations like the Howard League. Well,
1: well, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm sort of connecting Howard, Howard Howard League and all these things to the sort of think tank world. And certainly in justice, that group, Prison Reform Trust, Howard League were were very, very important, were trusted Mm. by, and I guess in, in defense, RUCI, double I double S, but you know, even Chatham House, which is, partly funded by the foreign office, very close to the foreign office, often I think do get a bit frustrated at the sense that they're not really on the inside. Whereas US think tanks, Mm. Brookings Institution, Council on Foreign Relations, some of the US universities you really do feel have a much, much more direct line into the administration than their UK Mm. equivalents.
0: I think the other thing that think tanks struggle with is – some just want to sort of create interesting ideas and, and, and get into the public policy debate, but they want to have the sense of having influence over be it the government or the opposition. And the issue of think tank political alignment, I think, is quite difficult. I mean, it's possible, I think it's unlikely, but it's possible that those Tufton Street mobs could come up with the occasional good idea every now and then. It's very unlikely to be accepted by a progressive government. because of where it's coming from. Likewise, I think there are probably think tanks on the left that the Tories would never look at as well. Now, here's Rory. we talked about the Green Belt last week. George Parrish, two related questions here. How does Rory plan to solve the housing crisis if building on the Green Belt is forbidden? And Katie Del Rey, who occluded with her question, had linked to Wikipedia telling us there are 131 golf courses in London. What are your thoughts on the idea of building on the many golf courses in London Instead of the green belt, a minority of people
1: use golf courses. Does London really need 131 of them? Um, I, I'd be surprised if many of those golf courses aren't actually in the green belt. Um, I wonder how many of them are, are in London proper.
0: AT, you need to check out your source and let, yeah, us, know. Check out, let, but let what, us know. What about the idea, though? I mean, he, that is not the first time I've heard that as an idea.
1: I mean, generally speaking, I guess I'm trying to hold back against building on green space. I think what we need to do is get what I would call gentle density into London um if you if you compare London with cities like Paris, they have a lot of very good five or six story seven story buildings which are attractive, which don't destroy the landscape, which are at a human scale and which fit in many more people, you can see it actually. Do you know where the most one of the most densely populated areas in london is is around uh, Sloan Avenue around Sloan okay. Square? -hmm. So often, the most densely populated areas of London are some of the poshest, most valuable areas of London. But the problem on London is that we have very been reluctant to, uh, well, very reluctant to deal with the fact that we've got this huge spread of semi detached or two story houses spreading out over mile after mile after mile. I also think the Mayor of London has not been as imaginative as he could have been on building on thousands of acres of transport for London land. Mayor of London Land, which which is just there for affordable housing to be built on. And I'd like to see a government come in that was really bold about providing. I, I'd like to see them literally build the equivalent of council houses, because I think it's a good investment for a city like London. Don't pay developers and tell them to put in 20% affordable. Build and own the houses, rent them out at an affordable rate. And then you'll be sitting on a fantastic store of value for the city for the next 200 years and build them six stories high, proper avenues like Stone Avenue. And you'll find you'll get a lot of people in and you can have a very, very human scale fulfilling existence in those communities.
0: Mm. I'm going to give a shout out to Sadiq's new book, which was out this week called Breathe, which is about air quality. It helps to explain and uh, the climate and helps explain why he is, despite a lot of political opposition and organized campaigning against him, extending the the, the Ules in, uh, in London. Now, here's one, Rory. Prita Bardan. what is your favorite Tina Turner song? Can you think of anyone more resilient than Tina? I think percivilian, you'll find, is the word. And also, is Alistair able to play Simply the Best on the backpipes? I'll give it a go. I can give it a
1: go, but, but not today. That's, that's so, very good. I, unfortunately, the, the, the Tina Turner tune that I know best is Simply the Best.
0: Do you know any others? Come on, Rory, let's get I'm into not, the culture.
1: No, I'm I kind of, you know, weirdly, I'm not sure about Tina Turner. I was listening to Tina Turner recently, and I was trying to get my head around. You're much more musical than me. But do you not agree that Whitney Houston has a much, much better voice than Tina Turner?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Tina Turner is just an amazing performer. I love Simply the Best because when... My boys were growing up, and I was first indoctrinating them in the art of being a Burnley supporter, which meant four hour car journeys up, dragged up there to watch the game. We used to play simply the best as
1: the teams came yeah, I out. Think you're, I think you're dating yourself there. I had a ski teacher, British ski teacher from Essex in, um, in the uh, mid 1980s, who insisted that every time we went down a hill, we had to play simply the best. And still, when I ski, I can sort of hear simply the best in my head. That's
0: good that you have that sort of musical uh, resonance Mm. in your life. All right, Roy, let's just take a
1: quick break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. Here we are back from the break with the rest of politics question time.
0: Now here at Roy Aidan. do we talk a little bit about, about the press on the on the main podcast? Aidan, to what extent have the far right tabloid press poisoned political discourse in the UK, particularly England,
1: and is their behaviour simply the price of democracy? Very good. Okay, go on. That, that's one of your favourite questions in the world. Give us, give us your answer. Yeah, I want to know your view. I want, I want your view. Well, let me let me start by saying <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, I think they've done a huge amount of damage. I think um, it's been very, very damaging for political life, for trust in politicians, for our views on the monarchy, and many, many other things. It's been hugely destructive force. I would say that I've experienced some, you know, pretty pretty unfair, hard reporting from tabloid newspapers on the left as well as on the right, but. I do think the British press is a pretty terrifying. Um, go on, over to you.
0: I think it I, – I remember a guy who used to work for Murdoch in Australia, and I was out in Australia, and he said, "He said, mate, the thing about the British papers, they're the best in the world, and they're the worst in the world. And it's usually in the same edition. And I think, <laughs> I think, I think there is a little bit of, um, of rough with smooth. But I do think now I – mean, a classic example last week. You have the net migration figures. Now, how many – thousands of forests have been felled so that the papers can tell us that this is the most important significant issue and these terrible immigrants who come in here and stealing our jobs and destroying our public services etc and the the hate that is pumped out there then along comes some truly dreadful net migration figures for the government i don't think they made a single front page apart from the daily express which had yet another sort of cheerleading sunak to get tough sunak to sort it out And when you see that, you look at the reality, of, for example, of the damage that Brexit is doing to the country and the economy at the moment. And, you know, day in, day out, they're telling us how well it's going. I think they've damaged their credibility hugely, particularly in the last few years. But I agree with you. I think that they've done considerable damage to the nature of our debate. One of the things that comes out in these talks that I'm doing around the book, and I know you've been doing loads of this stuff as well, is that, and I think it's one of the reasons people listen to our podcast and other podcasts in such numbers, is because people just don't think they really are getting any true debate or any honest analysis. Everything is designed to fit into the prism of a few very, very wealthy, very, very right wing media owners and editors. That's it. And I think we have to recognise that's what they
1: are. The problem is that the BBC, which I I really do love, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the BBC, but they are very, very constrained by these very difficult impartiality stuff, which often Mm. means that they can't be quite as blunt, as outspoken as we'd like them to be. Um, Mm. Here's a question I quite liked, which resonated with me, but I'd like to see what you made of it. Michelle Fox, I'm an Irish actor living in London for nearly a decade. Why do many English people have zero idea about Irish British history? Constantly dismayed when English people ask me if my country is part of the UK and are completely ignorant about the troubles. Um, I really did feel that. I was very embarrassed actually as a member of parliament by how little we talked about Northern Ireland particularly, how rarely people visited Northern Ireland, how vague the views of me and many of my colleagues were about the different parties that were sitting with us in the House of Commons, and it, 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 there was something sort of almost kind of tragic about it because Northern Ireland, particularly unionists in Northern Ireland, feeling deeply part of the United Kingdom, and but so many people in England, Scotland, and Wales, you know, almost behaving as though it wasn't part of their country at all. Um, any any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think mean, I think there are there are parts of Scotland where. I think that the sense of Irish politics is, is, is very deep in the debate. And you, you, know, you see it and most obviously in every time Celtic play Rangers. And, but I, so I think Scotland may be a little bit different, but no, there's no doubt about this. I mean, one of the, you know, when we were doing the peace process in Northern Ireland, one of the difficulties we had to deal with domestically, and this, this used to show up in polls at times is like, you know, the view in England in particular that we were wasting, quotes, wasting so much time on Northern Ireland. And that attitude, you know, why just let them sort themselves out? So I think the questioner is right. I think there's a, at times an almost willful ignorance. And that's why, you know, I do think that maybe laced into the question is this sense that maybe what's happened with Brexit and the current manifestation of the Conservative Party is that English nationalism has become a very, very potent force.
1: It's very odd, isn't it? Because when we were interviewing Jerry Adams, he very much was on the view that... Great Britain, but particularly England, is this sort of immense oppressive imperial power um you know there to kind of crush the life out of ireland and 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 that sort of view, that republican view unfortunately may exaggerate how much the English or the British government actually think about it at all. I mean the republican view is you know this is an imperial power trying to crush them i mean often the, the reality is more sort of tragic indifference, isn't it mm
0: was, well, just they don't care. Yeah. Andrew Gallagher. Serbia has had some massive protests in favour of gun control. This follows the two mass murders in schools recently, but we hear very little about it. If it had happened in the United States, it would have been big news. Is this a deliberate attempt to have us equate the US as us and Europe as them?
1: Goodness gracious.
0: I must admit, I didn't know. if that's I didn't know about the protest, did you?
1: No, I didn't. Completely unaware of it.
0: So that's probably just to do with the fact that you know, we're back to the the problem of a very kind of Anglo-centric media. Uh, we don't, I'm afraid, cover abroad as much as we did. America is is different, and American politics in particular is different. But Andrew's absolutely right. If there were big anti-gun law protests in America, we would know about them, just as we hear about all their big shootings. And I was aware of the of the of the mass murders in the schools. But I was not aware of the, of the call for, for change.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I completely agree with you. I mean, and I, you know, only looking this up after hearing the question. Enormous demonstrations and uh, Serbians handing in thousands of weapons voluntarily. It's an amazing political moment. Australia, under I think John Howard, was very, very a good example of a skillful politician seizing a moment after a horrible series of mass shootings to completely change gun laws do it in a country like Australia with a strong tradition of gun ownership amongst farming communities and get it done. Mm. And and I think it'll be interesting to see how Serbia responds to this, whether they're able, like Australia, to use, use the momentum or whether, like the United States, they just get stuck forever.
0: Mm. What does it say, though, about our, our media that you and I follow reasonably closely, that neither of us were aware that these protests were going on in what is quite a significant country?
1: I think... British media is very, very, I'm afraid, bad on foreign reporting. I mean, you very rarely read very much about Eastern Europe. I mean, there's simply a fact about it, which is that newspapers are short of cash. They have fewer and fewer foreign correspondents. When they do have them, they're super stringers. When they do write stories, it's extremely difficult to get them printed. One of the problems, Mm -hmm. as, as as we've talked about, is these algorithms where the editors are very influenced by how many page views are particular story has and the mm. truth is you know panda falls over in edinburgh zoo it can guarantee to get kind of a million views and protests in serbia gun violence um doesn't get the views in the editor you know it may well be that there's some stringer in in belgrade trying to sell mm. the story to an editor and just not getting anywhere
0: yeah i think also we like to have Sort of images of different parts of the world, and the and the sort of conventional image of the of the Balkans is, you know, very violent, and therefore a story that goes against that, which is what I would describe as the definition of news, is
1: deemed less newsworthy than something that yeah, actually says, exactly. yeah, 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 we were right about them. They're very violent because it, it shows. Peaceful civil society demonstrations in Serbia when we want to characterize Serbia the way So they
0: covered the mass murders, but not the fact that the country's up in arms about them.
1: Now, here's one, Rory, but closer to home. Carol
0: Mason, the government has refused to supply unredacted documents to the COVID inquiry. Who is the government in a case like this? Is it the PM, the cabinet, the cabinet secretary? And what are they trying to hide? And whatever it is, do they seriously think it won't come out anyway?
1: So these are, I guess, the kind of things that I dealt with very, very frequently with a minister, and which were the result of your government. So under New Labour, freedom of information requests were introduced. I think Tony Blair is actually on record saying that he's sometimes wondered whether he'd done the right thing.
0: He wishes he hadn't done it. Exactly.
1: I mean, it's a very, very odd thing. As a minister, frequently, I was having to sign bits of paper brought to me. um, And what tends to happen is a request is made for information The civil servants in your department, the professional civil servants, go through the request, try to identify what they think they have to release legally and which things they think should be preserved confidentially for the sake, the phrase often is, I think, something like for the sake of being able to encourage open discussion in government. So the idea is that you don't want ministers or civil servants to be so terrified that everything they say is going to be public, that you're not able to sit around a table and say, I don't know anything about this, or have an argument, or maybe come up with a radical idea which you'd be horrified would appear in the press. But you obviously want to be able to sit around the cabinet room or sit around your department, not thinking that every single thing that you say to a civil servant or everything you discuss could be on the front page of the sun tomorrow. Otherwise, you're likely to just keep stumm. So I guess, I guess the government has engaged in that, civil servants will have gone through the requests and they will have tried to suggest that many of the discussions are things that they don't want to share with the committee.
0: But this is public inquiry set up under the very specific terms in which public inquiries are set up. So for example, when we had the Hutton inquiry, so Tony Blair announced the inquiry, Lord Hutton was appointed to run it. And then I get a letter from Lord Hutton saying, he wants to see my diaries. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And Tony was like, well, why should you have to do that? Nobody else is being asked. And I remember a conversation with Jeremy Hayward, who was the cabinet secretary. He said, look, you, the, the prime minister set up the inquiry, he said, we'll do everything we can to cooperate with it. That means everything. And I think what the question is about here is the fact that Boris Johnson has sacked his lawyers because of this kerfuffle over his WhatsApp messages, and he doesn't want to give unredacted WhatsApp messages. He's angry because the, the diaries that he kept at the time have been given to the inquiry. But I think you have to accept, particularly when you're at that level, at the very top of government, you have to accept that every single thing you say and do potentially is irrelevance if an event is then put under the microscope.
1: I, exactly. And I think the good um, approach to this, which is sometimes taken in Britain, is to have a committee which looks at this stuff on a confidential basis and where you trust the judge or whoever is leading the inquiry yeah. to see all the information but treat it respectfully and not set mm. about leaking things to the sun for sensational reasons and, and hope mm. that they have the judgment to tell the difference. No, it's,
0: it's like with my diaries, I had to literally sit next to a lawyer and go through every single word, including you know what my kids were up to, what my mum was up to, whatever it might be. I had to read every single word to them for them to decide what was relevant to the inquiry. right? So I think, I think if you can have a public inquiry, and I, I like the feel of this justice Hallett, I mean, if she's, she's going after Johnson's stuff and demanding that he hands it over, she's asking George Osborne. And I think I read somewhere, maybe even David Cameron and Jeremy Hunt as well in their previous roles to appear. So right, it's going to be interesting.
1: Very, very, well, it's so important. And I wish we'd done a proper inquiry on in Afghanistan. We never did. And I, I suspect we never will, but uh, I, I thought the final Iraq reports are extraordinary documents, really, really impressive work. And I think the learning from this COVID inquiry is going to be so important. It's critical. We made a lot of mistakes. I think, you know, we've talked about it a lot and we can talk about what those mistakes were, but let's see what the inquiry comes up with. Right. Jason Brown, in one of the leading interviews recently, Rory mentioned Darren Bent. Given Rory's aversion to sport and Bent's relative contemporary obscurity, it made me laugh a lot. What's the story there, Alistair? Well, Rory, you know this story
0: better than I do. Where, where did this utter obsession with Darren Bent stem from? Do you want to tell our listeners who, I'll tell you what, Rory, here's a quiz for you. Now, I'm watching you. You cannot Google. Okay, you cannot Google. Here he my hands. He, play, hands he, up. Played for, he played for nine Premier
1: League and Championship clubs. I'd like you to name two of them. No, I have absolutely can't. And let, let me tell you why this comes up. So Darren Bent comes up because at some point in this amazing WhatsApp thing, and incidentally, WhatsApp correspondence should be subpoenaed to and seen by some inquiry. sometime. <laughs> Somebody proposed Darren Bent as as a candidate for being interviewed on leading. And the fact that I'm unable to name a single team that he played for, um, I think slightly confirms uh, the reason why I'm perpetually making comical references to Darren Bent.
0: Right. Well, it was Ipswich, Charlton, Spurs, Sunderland, Villa, Fulham, Lone, Brighton,
1: Lone, Derby Lone, and Burton Do you Albion agree loan. with me that he might not be the ideal candidate for leading?
0: I think if we were looking for a candidate for leading uh, who came from the football world, I think we're looking at Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp,
1: Gareth Southgate.
0: Player Cantona. I think Cantona would be a good interviewee for leading.
1: Gary Minnick, of course, we've done. Get Cantona would be so great. Arsene Wenger. Arsene
0: Wenger, definitely. He's, he said that he will come on at some point. And, um, and Darren Bent, maybe just, you know, a little bit below that possibly. Very good. Okay. Shall I give you one last question? Go on then, yeah. This one made me slightly depressed actually because it made me realise how old we are now that I'm 66 and getting my pension. James, this year's first question on the Edexcel Politics A-Level was, to what extent did John Major lose the 1997 election as opposed to Tony Blair win it? Since Alistair will most likely be on the mark scheme, I was wondering how he would answer it. How would you answer that first?
1: I would say that it was uh, Blair actually had a very, very strong, impressive, positive campaign. I think it's true that you could have gone in with a lame campaign, and you probably would have been able to win a slender majority. But the scale of the majority that you won in 97 was a very focused campaign, a very fresh, charismatic candidate, and a sense at that period That the sort of moderate left was at its most, um, innovative, creative, confident. That's, you know, it's the nineties. It's the end of the Clinton era. You had an exceptional campaigning candidate in Blair. Whereas this coming election, I think we may more be in a situation in which, um, the conservatives lose it because they've been in power too long rather than the other side winning it.
0: Yeah, and that's what Labour has to fix in the next year. Um, I think it has to become much more about Labour positivity than the Tories being awful. Um, I think the first thing I'd answer in that question is that although it's it's focused on John Major and Tony Blair, but actually within the context of the campaign itself, I think John Major campaigned extremely effectively, Um, the Conservatives lost the election. Uh, now obviously he was the leader and he was the prime minister and they'd gone through ERM, which was one of those sort of, you know, critical moments where people lost faith in the government of the day. But I think it's I think the, the country was ready for the change. I think you I think we're agreeing agreeably here. I think the country was ready for the change, and they were able to look across the other side and think, you know what, that guy could be really, really good. And he looks like he's got a, you know, decent team behind him and there's a new government there. So that's how I would answer the question, James. I um, feel free to quote both of us in uh, any future <laughs> exams that you get. Uh, did I tell you the story that when when my daughter sat one of her exams, Jonathan Powell and I were a question, and she didn't
1: know the answer. That's very good. That's yeah. very good. I hope she, but well, she could have just made it up, couldn't she? the confidence in no, make no, it. No,
0: the thing, the thing is, Roy, that the the examiner would have known. <laughs> she could have said something. I think she should have said, Look, you know, you're coming into my personal space here. You're reminding me about my father. You're asking me about my father. And I think it's very unfair. And I think they've given her two marks for that. The question was, Why did Jonathan Powell and to Campbell have an ordering council signed by the Queen?
1: Oh, I see. She might struggle with that, wouldn't she? Yeah. Okay. Um, Will Lloyd, as my last question, although it's obviously something I'd love your views on, I'd also like a go at. After the next election, will the Conservative Party need to go through a detoxification process as Labour has successfully done? Do you believe the Conservative Party will have a similar moment of recognition and awakening? And who would be your preferred candidates to do so? Right, over to you.
0: Well, it's a very good question. and I honestly don't know the answer to that because I don't know today's Conservative Party well enough. My instinct of where it is politically and the sort of MPs who are in the ascendant and the sort of candidates that seem to be lining up, is that it will go to the right, particularly if Labour win a majority? I think they'll go to the right. So I think if you are looking at Suella Braverman, I think it'd be a terrible mistake for them. But i i don't see I don't see them moving to the centre
1: anytime soon. It's very, I mean, it, it, the pattern after the loss in ninety seven, particularly when Ian Duncan Smith came along, was of course a it was William Hague first, but then when Ian Duncan Smith came in, was very much a move to the right, and it it was Cameron coming in that moved the party back to the center and for my money made them an an, an electorally viable party. I think it's a very bad move. But you're right, there's a strong possibility that people will think that You know, they lost because they weren't right wing enough. That's often the case with parties that lose. They draw the wrong conclusions.
0: The Labour Party was a bedevil for years because we had this pretty strong strand in the party that said, you know, we'd lost
1: because we weren't Benite enough. We hadn't, we hadn't, we we, we were too centrist. That was very much where Corbyn came from, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. That, that, that the odd thing there was that actually, David Miliband would have been much more threatening to the Conservative Party than Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband was a bit more to the left. But of course, when he lost, instead of concluding they needed to go back to the center, they concluded they needed to go further to left. So mm. I think it's, it's likely that we'll end up with people like Kemi Badenoch and Sola um, yeah. Bravman coming forward. But it would be a catastrophic mistake because although the Conservative Party managed to lurch to the right and win in 2019, that was with this bizarre figure of Boris Johnson, who's not repeatable. And he was somebody who was able to play to the right, but also sort of flirt with the center and and essentially was a celebrity in a way that these other right-wing candidates can't. Mm. They will be creating a much bleaker, Mm. small world of true believers.
0: Also that NATCON, that National Conservatism Conference we talked about, I think if you look at it from the the left perspective, it, it felt like the kind of momentum within the Labour Party, it felt like something that was trying to Create something separate, and it's almost like psychologically they think, "Oh, well, we're not going to win the next election, but we we believe that we've got to move even further to the right, and we're setting this up now to drag it that yeah. way." Yeah, which uh, I, I mean, agree with you. I think it's a terrible mistake,
1: a really big mistake. Um, and and I think it's a, such a challenge, but it's something that the Conservative Party needs to do. Which is, if they lose the next election and if Rishi Sunak then steps down, it's so important that conservatives who care about the future of the party and on the centre start joining the party and start organising around the few MPs that still credibly represent uh, the centre in that party, rather than just giving up and handing it over to Swallow Braverman. Mm.
0: By the way, talking about John Major, I, I did this f- um, fabulous event the other day at Wimbledon Book Festival. It was at Roehampton University, and they got 600 state school kids there. And um, at one point I asked, you know, there were sort of 15, 16, 17-year-olds, for a show of hands, of who might in future, who thinks that they might go into politics. And, you know, I'd say 20, 30 or so hands went up, but there was a little gaggle of them in one group. And uh-huh. I said, like, wow, what's going on over there? That's there's, there's something very political going on in this school. Which school are you guys from? And if I tell you the name, it might ring a bell with you. It's Rutlish. Oh, it doesn't ring a bell. And that's
1: where where's where John Major went to school. Oh, goodness. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Well, yeah. I wonder whether that isn't paradigmic. I, mean, I mean, whether if you go to a school which has produced a prime minister, whether that doesn't make it feel yeah. much more tangible and possible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's right. Yeah.
0: So that's a more positive note to end on the one that we just
1: ended on. Very good. Okay, let's end there. Thank you, Alistair. <laughs> and have a nice time in Japan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.